You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Sermon text this morning is Genesis 1, 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. All right, thank you, Sarah. I don't think my ear microphone's working. So there was a man who, back in 1953, just shortly after World War II, went and toured Japan. Um, His name was Theodore Geisel. And uh, he was a political cartoonist who wrote a lot of propaganda kind of against the Japanese, a lot of kind of racial, racial stereotypes and, and, and those kinds of things. And after this tour of Japan, he wrote uh, a little kid's book um, called Horton Hears a Who. Anybody read that book before? Uh, Dr. Seuss wrote this book, and the refrain of this book, some have, some have said that maybe this was sort of in a sense kind of his apology for the way that he had um, the, the way he had represented the Japanese people, that after touring and seeing some of these schools and the children and interacting with them, uh, that maybe this book was a bit of his apology for that, um, for some of the things that uh, that he had had promoted about that particular race and people. And um, in the book, uh, it's the story of an elephant who hears voices on this speck of dust. He's the only one that can hear it. He can only, he's the only one who can hear the hoolings, or who, I forget what they're called, but the, the, the whoville that lives on this little tiny planet. And this elephant is the only one who seems to be able to hear these things in this kid's book, and, uh, and, and he, he feels compelled to protect and advocate for them. And there's this regular refrain throughout the book that a person's a person no matter how small. And over time he pays quite a price as he defends these little creatures um, until eventually someone finally hears them and, and everyone's opinion is changed. And a person's a person no matter how small. Um, during, uh, around that same time, the newly formed United Nations met in Paris, France, and they crafted a statement um, called the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. This was in 1948. And this was shortly after the atrocities of Hitler and the Nazis who killed millions of Jews Um, but also not only killed Jews, but rounded up all of those that they deemed were not appropriate for the master race. This included gypsies, people of African descent, homosexuals, and he didn't stop there. Thousands even of Germans with birth defects and mental challenges, as well as the old and the infirmed, were either sterilized, euthanized, or sterilized and then euthanized. 
And so as they gathered to try to make sure that this kind of event never happened again, the UN crafted a statement that begins with this statement. Recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So you put those two statements together, and they're both true. They're both wonderful statements. They're both great, but they kind of hang in midair. Is there an ontological basis for these statements? Will these stand the test of time? Will these be believed? Unless there is a footing underneath of these statements, they will eventually be denied and overtaken and will fall unless they stand on something ontological, something substantive, something eternal about the human race and about human beings. And that's what we want to talk about today is that Genesis 1 through 26 through 28 gives us an ontological reason that undergirds, and the reason these statements are true is because of what we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And that's what we want to talk about today is the God who is imaged. This is our third message in this series through the book of Genesis. And in the first message two weeks ago, we looked at just Genesis 1-1 in our beginning series. We looked at Genesis 1-1, the God who made everything. The God who made everything. And if you remember, we, had, we saw in that verse that there are two categories of reality. There's the category of uncreated things, and there's a category of created things. And in Genesis 1-1, right out of the gate, the Bible starts right away by saying that in the beginning, God. It doesn't argue for God's existence. It just states that he does. So there is one being, one thing in the uncreated category, and everything else that exists is in the created category. And we saw from that verse that God is eternal. He is sufficient. He's necessary. He's sovereign. He's eternal. And he's transcendent. And everything else in this category over here of created is dependent on that creator, comes from that creator. Everything in this category is dependent and designed by God. That's how your Bible begins. The very first seven words give you that framework, that there is an uncreated, eternally good God who made everything else. And that's the foundation of everything in the world. It's the foundation of everything. That's what the Bible tells us. Last week, we looked at the God who speaks and looked at verses 1 through 2, 3 of uh, chapter 1 and into chapter 2, and we saw that God is a God who speaks. So we see that how does God, the one who's in this category of uncreated, how does he create all of the things that are in the created category? And we see that he does it over the span of six days. He creates realms, and then he fills those realms. He forms three different canvases and then paints on those three different canvases, fills them with life, animated life, reproducing life, glorious light, and he says that it is good after each one, and he comes to day six, and he creates humanity, and that's what we're going to look at today, is that this crown of creation, this, this significant made-in-his-image being, we saw last week that God creates and sustains life by his word. He still does that. He still creates and sustains life by his word. We saw that in Jesus. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he used words to bring him to life, and God uses the word of the gospel to bring you to spiritual life. We see that God is a God who creates and sustains life by his word. We see that God designs and assigns roles by his will. There's birds and there's animals and they have their realm and they have their way of obeying God and they have their, the places 
that they are made to function by his will. He designs and he assigns, according to his will, everything in his creation. And then God sees everything and judges it by his standard. He makes a moral judgment on everything he sees. And at this point, he renders it all good. So we have a God who speaks. We have a God who wills. We have a God who judges. We see that in the very first chapter. And then we have this humanity. And we want to zoom in there, the God who is imaged. So the God who made everything, the God who speaks, and now the God who is imaged. And I want to just say five words about the creation of humanity in these three verses. Okay, we're going to go through this relatively briefly because I think they're fairly self-evident. I think you'll see them for yourself. There's no tricky seminary Bible tricks that I'm doing here. You can see these things. I want to show them to you. And then I want to really spend a lot of our time working through what the implications are through Scripture. Where, where does this fit with Jesus? How does Jesus interact with this truth about humanity? So, if you'd look in your Bibles at Genesis 1, 26-28, let me read it again. And then five words about the creation of humanity. So, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the first word is that we see intentionality. Notice this, we see intentionality, the creation of human beings. We see intentionality in this passage. Verse 26, when then God said, let us make man. So God has this conversation that he doesn't have with any of the other created things. We don't have any other recorded dialogue among God himself as he's considering creating the other things. We have a God who somehow speaks to himself, which we saw that in the first message that Elohim is actually a plural word in Hebrew, but it's used in the singular, which gives us this little clue that this God who made everything may actually be a plurality and singularity at the same time. And here we have another evidence that this God is somehow a plurality and a singularity and that he is talking, he is deliberating, he is creating as a plural and yet as a single We'll see this develop throughout the rest of Scripture as I think the doctrine of the Trinity. We have hints at it already here. And God is deliberating, intending, there's intentionality to the creation of humanity that is distinct from the other things that are created. God certainly intended those things, but he stops enough to speak and have a conversation. And this, he, we're intended to see that God creates man intentionally. Intentionality. And then we see in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you see the emphasis there over and over? Who created humanity? God did. With intentionality. Specifically. For a purpose. Deliberately. Man didn't emerge accidentally. Man was designed with intentionality. God deliberated among himself and said, let us make man. Something distinct with a particular intention, a particular calling that's distinct from everything else he makes. So, here's a bottom line for this one. Every human being is made on purpose by God. We see right here in these, these few words, 
every human being is made on purpose by God. There are no accidental human beings. None. They're made on purpose by God. Secondly, identity. We see that they have a distinct identity. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's the bestowal of identity. There is a unique identity. This is the only creature that is bestowed with the identity of image of God after our own likeness. And again, we see it repeated in verse 27 that this is not just something God thought about, but verse 27, God created man in his image. He didn't just think it, he did it. Created man and bestowed an identity image bearer. He repeats it, in the image of God, he created him, and male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Theologians have wrestled with this for a long time. Does it mean that we're like God in our intellect, in our spirituality, in our morality? I think it's probably all of it. All that makes human beings distinct from the animal kingdom, I think in some measure, is designed by God as our identity distinct from creation and similar to, like, in the image of God. We have a unique identity. Now, it's interesting, this, this idea of image and likeness. God has already talked about how the animals are reproducing after their kinds. And you almost have God saying, I'm going to make one of my kind, but he doesn't use the word kind because he doesn't want it to be confusing that these beings are somehow mini-gods or gods. They're not. They're like him, but they're not in the same kind. There's still only one kind God. But there's going to be one that's going to be kind of like God. Going to be in his likeness, in his image, distinct from the rest of humanity. So God is creating someone, a people, in his own image after his own likeness. I want to show, show you where this phrase shows up later. Look at Genesis 5, 1 through 3. I think that will be on the screen. You can also flip a couple pages if you want. We get this phrase, image and likeness, put together again. In Genesis 5, and I just, this is fascinating to me. In, so this is after the fall. Humanity falls, and Adam, or Cain kills Abel. Sorry, spoiler alert. I'm kind of ruining future messages here. But Cain kills Abel, and then God blesses them with another son, and that's where Genesis 5 comes in. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So God's reaffirming, yep. They're still in my image, even as fallen, like murder-each-other kind of people. They're still made in his image. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3, and Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Isn't that fascinating? So now human beings, they reproduce according to their kind, but the image carries on and He's in the image and likeness of his father. So that tells us a little bit that we, in some ways, resemble our father. We're of the same kind as God, with, but in a lesser sense. I got a picture here, I think, of just what this might have looked like. All right, so there are two human beings. One is a father, and one is the son of that father. Do you see any image or likeness between those two individuals? Yeah, and this is, what, this is what Genesis 5 is saying, is that Adam had a son, and his son resembled him. And, in this, and, he, and it talks about it, him being in his image and in his own likeness. Uh, Seth was in the likeness and image of Adam. And so Micah, that's Micah on the right, that's me on the left, roughly the same age. You can see there's a resemblance, right? 
so it is with us. Not that we're many gods. I want to be clear here. He doesn't say that we're of the same kind as him, but similar, resembling. It's the same phrases that the way a son resembles a father, so also we resemble God. We have an identity in that we uniquely resemble God in a way that cats don't, that tuna fish don't, that carrots don't. There's something about humanity that resembles God, even in its fallen state. A resemblance, an identity granted on every human being. Genesis 2.7 tells us this about the creation of man. So Genesis 2 then zeroes in on the creation of man. This, this is what, what we're going to be looking at in a couple weeks. And look, God says that it's not good that man should be alone. And so he then, or I'm sorry, this is before that. that that's coming up. But he decides that he needs someone to work the garden and to keep it. And in Genesis 2.7, it says, The Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So he's creaturely, he's from the dust. So in that sense, he's not like God. But he is filled with the divine breath of God. And that's his, that's his image. He bears God's image in that he has the ruach, the breath of God, and becomes a living nephesh, a living soul. So here's the bottom line here. Every human being bears resemblance to God. Look around the room, and you are seeing people that resemble God. As you drive and see people sleeping in the ditch or walking along the road or eating at a restaurant, they resemble God. They're made in his image. They're granted a certain status, a certain identity. So they're made intentionally, and they have a unique identity in that they resemble God. Third word is authority. There is a, an authority here. And notice this. In verse 26, then God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then right here, look at, look at this. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over the land and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And you skip down to verse 28. And he blesses them and he says, have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's intention in verse 26 becomes reality in verse 28 as he speaks to them and they are given authority. They're giving God-like authority over the created realm. So in some sense, the image of God means that humanity bears a certain authority and responsibility on the earth. A certain authority and responsibility um, before God, on behalf of God in the world. So we have this sense of authority. The image of God, mankind is made with a certain measure of God-like authority. So I want to ask you, do you recognize this picture here? Kids, can you tell me who that is? Who is it, Brady? What? Tutankhamun? You got his full name. That's awesome. Most people just say King Tut. They don't know the whole thing. King Tut, right? All right, so King Tut. King Tut is famous because he was an Egyptian pharaoh in the 1300s-ish B.C., so this would have been about, uh, you know, roughly 100 years or so after the Exodus. So he's in Egypt, and uh, the reason he's so famous is that in 1922 we found his tomb, and it was basically undisturbed. So all the treasures and stuff, that was super rare. Most of them had been pillaged and stolen, and you just get this sense of like, oh my goodness, these people were buried with tremendous riches, and there's so much we've learned about Egyptian culture by excavate, excavating King Tut's tomb. 
But his name, Tutankhamun, literally means the living image of Amun. His name means the living image of Amun. He claims to be in the image of God, and that image of God is his reason and, and right to rule. So the idea of saying in that time and place that someone is made in the image of God means that they bear some authority to rule. So this is significant because only kings, only the people at the top would claim that kind of divine right to authority. Not only that they resemble that God, but that they also have the right to rule as that God over this place. So King Tut's name actually is saying, I have the authority to rule over you as this God. I am the living image of this God. Slaves would not be considered in the image of God. No one but that one who's at the top would be considered at the, an image bearer of God. So do you see how countercultural this would have been for Moses to tell them that God says that these lowly slaves in the desert are made in the image of God? You have the same dignity and worth, no, greater dignity and worth than the king, than Pharaoh. Every human being has God-like authority in that sense and that they are made in the image of God. This democratizes this, that every human being has worth and value and their voice matters. What they have to say matters and has consequence. This is going to become really significant when we get to the fall is that someone with this level of authority when they get it wrong, they really mess stuff up. Sin is really, really bad because these people are made in the image of God and they have an authority so that when Adam and Eve fall, they plunge all of creation under it. When a king or a pharaoh, when they fall, the whole nation feels it. When human beings fall, everything that humanity touches falls with them because they have authority and responsibility and their decisions bear consequences. So this tells us the universe is a kingdom. There is an absolute monarch, a king, a god, and there is a realm where that god rules, which is heaven and earth. There are subjects, and there are also image bearers who are both subjects and vice regents with that god. To rule over the subjects, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, God has created vice regents. Vice regents is a deputy, a person who acts in the place of a ruler, governor, or sovereign. Every human being is a vice-regent on behalf of God. This is why, kids, you should keep your room clean. You are imaging God by exercising authority and responsibility over the things under your care. This is why dads and husbands and moms are so important. Because we're imaging God. And our decisions have effects. Our words have power like God's do. Our wills can help or hurt and we're to exercise the authority in us for the good of the realm that God has given us. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So look around at the human beings. There is tremendous power infused in that person. Their words have power. Their wills have consequences. There's an authority inherent in every human being. Number four. Fourth word. Sexuality. Right at the very beginning here in the verse few, the very first words about humanity, and God brings up gender, sexuality. Look at this. So God created man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
intrinsic to the image of God is the idea of an assigned gender, either male or female. It's right out of the gate. Fundamental to humanity. Fundamental to the universe. Pre-fall. Pre-sin. God's going to declare it very good that he assigns male and female and that they image God together. So gender and sexuality is not incidental or optional, but essential to human identity. It is part of the image of God in us. The gender and sexuality God has assigned to us, male and female, God has assigned to us. Now it's interesting because the other creatures we know are created male and female, but there seems to be largely functional There is something identifying, there's something that God brings it up here as being uniquely imaging him as male and female in a way that the animals don't. There's a function that the animals have that their male and females serves, but yours has a worshipful approach to that. There is something intrinsic to humanity. Right here we see that when God creates, he does that intentionally, specifically. The image of God is tied in that way. It's intentional, it's identifying, it's authoritatively gendered by God as an expression of his image and likeness. So that means every human being is assigned male and female by God. It's not self-determined or self-designed or self-assigned. It's a gift of God as a good, very good gift for you to image him with as. Sexuality and number five, unity. Notice the plural words in these two verses. Let us make man, you see a unified decision, a united decision. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then let us let them, as a unit, as unity, let them, plural, working together as one, have dominion over the fish of the, air, fish of the sea, the birds of the air, or birds of the heavens. Look at the end of verse 27. Male and female, he created them as a unity. Distinct, but a unity. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is the first creature that God actually speaks to and not just about. All the others, he speaks and they be, and then he defines their reality. Here he actually, it appears, looks them in the eye and speaks to them. They have a will. They have a moral will. They have a responsibility to act in unity with God. They're not to go do their own thing, and they're to do their thing together. Humanity, part of the image of God is that we be united to God, be in unity with God, and in unity with other human beings. In chapter 2, when God creates the man and he sends all the animals in front of him, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. This lone Adam, this lone man, cannot fully image me or accomplish his assignment by himself. You can't do humanity by yourself. You can't image God entirely by yourself. And so then he creates this woman and this is fascinating. In, in Genesis 2, 21 through 24, the Lord, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, one took one of his ribs and closed it up in his place, in the place of his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man that he made into a woman and brought her to the man, the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, for she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become flesh. You see the unity there. 
This is not to say that you have to be married to image God. That's absolutely not the case. If that were the case, Jesus would be disqualified. And I don't think we want to disqualify Jesus. But what it is saying is I think there's a sense of companionship, and there is something that's going to uniquely image God in marriage. But this is to say that the image of God is meant to be a a group project. It's something we do in relationship with each other. To be rightly imaging God is to be in relationship with other human beings, to be united with them under God, doing God's project, to show our unity with God. We're made to be unified with God and with each other. The greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be rightly related to him. Be united to him. And love your neighbor as yourself. Be rightly related, united with your neighbor in this group project of imaging God in the world. So we see every human being is made for relationship with one another and with God. Every human being is made for relationship with one another and with God. Let me just put all of those together. I think they're on the screen here. Every human being is made on purpose by God. Every human being bears resemblance to God. Every human being is a vice regent on behalf of God. Every human being is assigned male or female by God. And every human being is made for relationship with one another and with God. So after learning who God is and learning how he created the world, the most important thing we need to know is who is this human image-bearing creature? This is essential to understanding the whole world. This is essential to understanding the way God works. And the reality is, is that we know, long story short, Genesis 3 happens. Humanity takes that intentionality, takes that identity, takes that authority, that sexuality, that unity, and turns it on God, turns it away from God, turns it in on itself, and it becomes horribly corrupted to where not one of those five things operates appropriately now, does it? Other than the intentionality of God. We still have our identity in God. I guess these things are all fundamentally still true about every human being. But something's broken in it. it. The image is marred. It's not erased. All of these things are still true of every human being. But they are defaced, and er- and, but not erased by sin. It's defaced but not erased. The image, these five things are still true of every human being you will ever meet. And every single one of them has been marred by sin. It's marred, it's mocked, it's mimicked. The image of God is disrespected, defaced. And we've done it. It's not just the bad people out there that are doing it. We've done that. We've probably used our words, the authority of our words, to hurt someone today. Right? We're we're all in this together in the sense that we've all been marred. But the image of God is not erased in any human being. Colossians 1. Look at this. Look at the good news that's in Colossians 1 here. Colossians 1, 15 through 22. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Ah, you heard image before? He's the perfect human. He is the perfect human. Adam and Eve had every advantage, and they got it wrong. Jesus came and got it exactly right. He's the image of the invisible God, the perfect human, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. He's both man and God. 
You, you ever like been on a road trip with your siblings? Your sibling, you and your siblings are kind of fighting in their back, in the back, and your dad's got his arm swinging. You know the arm swing. Don't make me stop this car and come back there. <laughs> there was a little bit of that here. God's like, don't make me come down there, and He does. Not to judge, but to rescue, to be the image of God and to redeem images of God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven. So he came to restore that which has been broken. That image of God that's so beautiful and wonderful, Jesus came and was the perfect image of God and now paid the penalty for those that broke the image of God that they might be restored, redeemed. Look how, it, look how the Bible puts it. Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, using all your image of God privileges to mock the God whose image you're made in, yeah, that can be forgiven. That can be made right. The punishment that's due that was put on him. And he now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him to restore all of this. To restore all of these things. To restore the image of God in you. And that's what the gospel is. Is that God's image has been terribly marred. And you've been a victim of that. You've also been a perpetrator of that. It still exists. It's still there. And God wants to reclaim it through Christ. So repent of your sin, trust in Jesus Christ, and the image of God will begin to be restored. He declares you righteous, and then through sanctification, begins to put the way the image of God is supposed to function in the world is being put back together in you. If you will walk with him and follow him, trust in him. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus comes and is the image that we should have been, is a greater image because he's God himself, and he came and bore the punishment for image bearers so that image bearers could be made right. This is a sweet deal. All of the things that are wrong, all the things we broke, Jesus is able to fix and to restore and to reclaim if we will trust in him. So, you've come to faith in Christ, and now the image of God is being restored. How do you live in the world? This is where I want to spend the rest of our time. We want to live now with God, with God-given intentionality. God has an intention in his creation of us, and we want him to have the glory that he intended from our lives. We want to live in our God-given identity. We want to live with the God-given authority. We want to embrace our God-given sexuality, we, and we want to live in God-given unity. Do you see how those five come together as we walk with Jesus? Not one of them is left out. All of them. That's the glory of the Christian life, is that we now get to experience more and more the freedom from sin and the restor restoration of the image of God in us. It's an awesome opportunity to enjoy and display and share that good news with others, right? The redeeming grace of God is changing us. The nature of humanity, I think, is the 
theological challenge of our day. If you look at our, our culture and the pressures we're facing, I think our understanding of what a human being is, what a human being's worth, what defines them is at the heart of everything that we're facing in our culture right now. Who is a human person? Do they have dignity and value? What is their sexuality? How does that work? How does that fit with their identity? How, how do human beings live together with each other? This, this, all of this is at the very center. And we as Christians have the best news in the world, and we have the answers to the problems. People are searching for answers to problems, and they're just creating more problems. That's what sin does. So it offers you a false hope. It offers you a false satisfaction. It points you to a false God. And we're standing here. God has placed us in this culture at this time to hold out that, no, God has made mankind wonderful, and yet man is deeply wicked. But God came to save wicked people and restore them. And I think Jesus now, because of just the day that we're in and the challenges that we face, God, Jesus is calling us to a very complex and strange obedience. And I want to look at a few texts here. I think this is on the next slide, okay? Jesus is calling us to a complex and strange obedience. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And I want you with this idea of the image of God being restored in humanity at the center of what Jesus is describing here. Because I think this is what makes sense of so much of what Jesus talks about, is that he is the image of God, and he's restoring people to the image of God, and he's calling people to do something very strange, because we've only lived in a world where people use their image of God's status to hurt each other, right? He's like, this is what it means to image God. And so much of Jesus' teachings, I think, are him showing us that if we'll trust in him and he'll follow him, we will become the image bearers God intends. And I think... Luke 10 is a great example of this. Look at Luke 10. Um, I forgot which verse I wanted. Luke 10, 22. Luke 10, 22. And look at this. So Jesus is feeling a lot of pressure from the religious leaders who don't like him. They're trying to cancel him. They're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to execute him because they don't like what he's saying and doing. He's ruining their <laughs> their system and so this is an opportunity to try to trap him luke 10 22 that's not what i want that's why it looks weird verse 25 thank you and behold a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and he said what is written in the law how do you read it so this is a test but it's a good question. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's, at the, that's, at the, that, that's in part of Genesis 1, right? Know God and love him right. And then love is image bearers, right? Even as you love yourself, you, you're made in the image of God too, right? So you have all of that. I'm made in the image of God. I'm to treat others as if they're made in the image of God as an expression of the fact that I love God. Do you see how it's all put together here? And he said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Yeah, just get rightly related to God and then be an image bearer. And treat other people like they're image bearers. Do that. You got it. And he said, and he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Is there anyone that I don't have to treat as an image bearer? Is there anyone that I don't have to be an image bearer towards? Is there anyone that I don't have to love? And... 
Here's Jesus' masterful reply. Just think about this. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Not a lot of good image bearing there. Right? One image bearing, victimizing, even trying to murder another image bearer. Now by chance, a priest. Oh, here we go. Here's someone who represents God well, a priest. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Does that image God well? No, both, both the priest is failing to image God and failing to value someone made in the image of God. Do you see the double? The double sin? Not just how he's treating the person, but what he's actually doing to his own soul by walking right by. So likewise, a Levite. Okay, well, priests are supposed to do spiritual work. Levites do practical work like help people. So the Levite, yeah, the priest just knew the Levite was coming, and this is kind of more Levite work. Let the Levite do it. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by the other side. Not like he just missed it, wasn't paying attention. No, he saw it. He saw an image bearer in need and failed to bear the image of God himself. So there you got the double again. Not only not valuing it in the other, but, not, but choosing not to do it in himself. Passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan. Samaritans, generations before, were the people who had intermarried. They were the Jewish people who had intermarried with the pagans. And so they were almost worse than human. The, the, they were the Samaritans. So this is, if there's anyone that might not be made in the image of God... It was someone who did this, Samaritan. Who does Jesus pick? This man who is wanting to justify himself, Jesus picks the most like, oh, not a Samaritan. Don't say a Samaritan. I hate Samaritans. I hate Samaritans. Here's what it is. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus looks him in the eye. I can imagine here. It doesn't say that, but I can imagine him looking him in the eye. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who imaged God here? who fulfilled the law by honoring God and both being an image bearer and cherishing image bearers. And look what the man says. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. It's too dirty in his mouth. The one who, was, who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Do you feel the intensity of that? You're coming, you're wanting to justify yourself, and you're wanting to know what boxes you can check. You have to be rightly united with God, and you have to be an image bearer and care for image bearers. You got it. That's the law. That's salvation. That's what Jesus did. Go to Matthew chapter 5. See if this image bearer thing doesn't fit here as well. Jesus gives his great sermon on the mount where he's kind of laying out, this is how the kingdom works, this is the kingdom values, this is what I'm calling you to. 
And this is so strange and unusual. That's why I have it up there. Well, I don't have it up there, but this is a strange and unusual obedience. This does not compute in our minds. There is something in us that goes, this will never work, Jesus. Like We have to live in the real world here where you fight fire with fire. And it's like, well, if you fight fire with fire, you get more fire. Try water. Try fighting fire with water. Try the values of the kingdom over the values of this world. And here's what he comes to say. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, but I, I don't know how to edit Jesus here. And I think this has to do with image bearer status. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment because of the image bearers. That's going to be in Genesis 9. We're going to see that later. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Who, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool to an image bearer will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid that last penalty. This is a strange obedience Jesus is calling us to. And I think it has image bearing at its core. Verse 27, let's think of the sexuality part. You have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Now that's tied to the image of God, that's why. It's not that God's trying to be bossy or trying to take away all the fun or trying to like ruin our lives. Like, no, that's part of my image. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, an image bearer, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery in his heart with her. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It'd be better to be rightly imaging God all marred physically than to be in great physical condition and not be imaging God. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you should lose one of your members than to your, than your whole body to go into hell. And it just keeps going. For it is said, whoever who divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And that's, there's a lot of questions there as well, but I think that's image bearer. That's that sexuality we talked about that was right at the beginning of the creation. Oaths, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or, or for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, for by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. I image God well by being truthful and being truthful in the ways that you can actually control, right? Don't make promises you can't keep. Know your place. Image God by being a truth teller. Retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles 
Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now it's getting complex, isn't it? What if image bearers are, are disrespecting your image? And he doesn't give us an easy answer here. I'm not trying to answer all the questions here. I am trying to go, do you see what Jesus is doing? You have heard it said, you shall love your enemy, or you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Makes sense. That's how the math lines up in the world, right? But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father. Bear his resemblance. See that? So that you might bear his resemblance who is in heaven. For he has made the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's not very godlike. You don't have to know God at all to do that. But it is uniquely godlike to love someone who is hating you. Isn't that what God did with each one of us? That's uniquely godlike to act in love and benevolence towards the one who hates you. That's godlike. That image is God. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even, ta- even tax collectors do the same, but if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're supposed to be just brought to our knees here. Like, I can't do this. Yeah. That's why you need Jesus. You want to do the law thing? Here, here's his. Image God perfectly. You can't do it. Would someone do it in my place? Yes. Will someone empower me to do it more and more each day? Yes. Jesus did. That's the glory of the gospel. He's calling us to something that's way over our heads, and then he does it for us, and then in us, as we follow him, it begins to become reality in our lives too. We begin to be empowered this way. So Jesus is calling us to a strange, countercultural, complex obedience we're not just playing checkers anymore. We're playing 3D chess, right? We've got things to think about. So it's not just that, hey, that particular issue is against the image of God. I'm going to blast whoever holds that issue. No, I'm an image bearer, and they're an image bearer, and I want to win my opponents. I want to love my enemies. So we're playing a complex game here where we have to honor the image of God even in those who are destroying the image of God while also advocating for justice and right thinking. We have to be image bearers, speaking to image bearers, even about issues and complexities and situations and actions that go against the image of God. We got, we're playing 3D chess here, not just checkers. We have to image God to image bearers as we address issues. You see what I'm saying? This is Christian's superpower in some ways, is this ability to love our enemies and disagree with them and lead them to the truth, to speak the truth in love. To put together both grace and truth. Jesus did it masterfully 100% of the time. And he calls us to do the same in his power. James 3, 7 through 11. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature has been tamed, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. You got dominion there? We can kind of gain control of just about everything in creation. But there's one thing that we have a hard time with. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless Lord and Father. We sing, wonderful, we will not be shaken. And holy, holy, holy. And with it we curse people who what? Are made in the likeness of God. It doesn't even say whether those people are right or not, does it? 
We curse people. Not the bad people, just any people made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Not for Christians. Can't do that. So, five applications here on the image of God. I promise I am going to be done soon, but I have a couple more things for you. Five applications. Image of God, we must oppose. This feels like kind of a hard turn, but let me just land this real here, really clear. We must oppose abortion as an assault on God himself. A person's a person no matter how small. Psalm 130. So if you're not a Christian or you just don't fully understand why Christians get so worked up about this whole abortion thing, this is why. We think that that person was created intentionally with an identity and authority to be united with the rest of the human race, not exterminated by it. And that that's granted by God, not based on whether they're valuable, not based on whether they have a lot to offer society, even if they're the greatest burden that anyone has ever been to society. That's God's image. Even at the one cell level. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, Surely you've knit me together in my mother's womb. Which means that God didn't just do this creation act at the beginning. He's doing it with every human being who's conceived. He is hand-making them. Just as he crafted Adam out of the dust, so he is crafting every human being, no matter how they got there. No matter what sin or injustice happened that brings that child together, to be is intended in some way by God. So the 3,000 a day that are being exterminated in our country is just unfathomable to the Christian who loves God and loves their neighbor, even their tiny little 10-celled neighbor. 125,000 around the world. 22% of all pregnancies in the U.S. are in abortion. One of five. Like, that's why it's a big deal to us. Is Genesis 1 kind of puts us in a corner there. Like, we just can't not think about it. We can't not say something. Secondly, we must work for justice while speaking of the God who justifies. Justice matters to us because we want to image God well and we want people who are made in God's image. Human flourishing was the point of our existence from the beginning and we want to do that for everybody. So we have to be willing to listen. Even if people don't get it right, even if people have poor motivations, to at least look for the ways that maybe God's image is being marred and mistreated. And people have a voice and they matter. Even if they're saying the wrong things, we have an opportunity to kind of go, is there something here that God would have us work for and with? One thing I just thought of last night as I was thinking about this is that 84% of Native women are abused. That, that's, a, that's an image of God issue. One in three Native women are raped. And 13% of those rapes will never be prosecuted. That's not a political issue. That's an image of God issue. Right? So we care about justice while knowing that the God who justifies in Christ is the ultimate answer to the whole thing. So we don't do the social justice thing because we think that will bring heaven. We do the social justice thing because people are made in the image of God and it's an opportunity to point them to the God who justifies. To Christ, right? 
Third, we must flee sexual immorality and defend sexual complementarity for God's glory. Uh, I ran across this that uh, you just think of like pornography. It's just rampant. They say that 1.7 million children run away from home um, each year. One-third of them will be recruited to be part of sex trafficking. That's U.S. That's not worldwide. We, we go ma- exponentially. So that short little video on your phone that's just you and the... No, that's probably a child. It's probably someone who was taken as a child, and now they're adult, and they don't know anything else. Like, so we must flee sexual immorality, and there's so many things we could talk about here, but this is, it's part of the image of God. It's Genesis 1.26. It's what we're made to get right because we're imaging God. Fourth, we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, that wasn't optional. <laughs> they're made in God's image, and Jesus says, you're a reconciled image bearer of God, and you, this is it. This is what you signed up for when you signed up to follow me. Number five, we must go and make disciples of all nations that God may have as much of his image redeemed as possible. There are 151,600 people who will die today around the world. 42% of them never even had a shot at hearing about Jesus. Like they don't know anyone. They have never in their entire lives come into contact with anyone that knows the gospel. 42% of our world, 3.2 billion people, have no access to the gospel. None. And we want God to have his image back. So we need to go and we need to tell. We need to make disciples of all nations. I want to close with this. I know I'm going long, but this is just so important. I don't know how to rush it. So let's think of the early church for just a moment. Early church. They go from just a few thousand people in 50 AD. So you take these teachings of Jesus this marred image that's been, you know, all this stuff. It's fulfilled in Jesus. He is the image of God. He gives us instruction. We've got this newly granted Holy Spirit. People are walking with Jesus right out of the gate, and they're in a hostile pagan culture. They are getting it from all sides. They're considered polytheists by the Jews because they believe that in more than one God, so to speak, because Jesus and the Father is God. They only believe in one God. But they're, they're being attacked from one side. They're being called atheists, because they won't bow down to the pagan gods. They're getting it from both sides. They're getting it everywhere. And they go from just a few thousand people in 50 AD to 32 million in 350 AD. In 300 years, they go from a few thousand to 32 million. They become 53% of the Roman Empire. They have the majority in pagan Rome. How do they do it? Not one of them was elected Caesar tell Constantine, kind of flipped the script. So I'm not saying political, but they didn't get there by political power is my point. They didn't do it by wielding the sword. They did it by the way of Jesus. And I'm not trying to make some big statement about any of those things. I'm just saying that this is how it started. And here's some things that they did that transformed as they imaged God, babies. They had lots of babies. And all of the people that were throwing their babies in the ditches, they went and picked them up. It was common in those days that if you had a baby and that baby was a girl, you got rid of it. We see that in China now. And the Christians would go dig the babies out. Within a couple of generations, the Roman Empire was two-thirds women, one-third men. No, no, no. Other way. Two-thirds men, 
one-third women because they had discarded so many of their girls. And the Christians went and scooped up all the girls. And so then when men wanted to get married, guess who they had to marry? The Christians. Because they're the only ones that have the women. It was women. It was their, their love. It was Christianity's love for babies and women and people who were sick. Everyone that was, that was a cost socially, they took in. They had courageous community where they cared for one another. Benevolence and hospitality. They selflessly served and they joyfully suffered. They were willing to go to their death without saying a word of accusation against their killers. They were trying to win the guards that were killing them while they're killing them. I'm an image bearer. They're an image bearer. And maybe in their killing of me, they'll see something of Christ and they'll be my brother. And it worked. Not every time. There's a letter from 130 AD, the Epistle of Diognetus. And this is from chapter 5. Actually, Justin pointed this out to me. So this is right in the middle of it. This is when Christianity is really getting pressed by the Roman Empire. Disciples are all gone. I mean, there's just, or the, the apostles are all gone. And just listen, I'm just going to read this and then we're going to close. And here's what, this, this letter is a, there's someone who's exploring Christianity and, named Diognetus. And whoever wrote this, we don't know who wrote it, wrote to him, persuading him to become a Christian. In chapter 5, he says, look at how the Christians live. This is his apologetic to Diognetus that you should become a Christian. Look at how they live, and here's how he describes it. The manner of Christians. For Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life that is marked out by any singularity. You can't, like, categorize them as they live in that state or they built that city or they all speak that language. They're everywhere. You can't mark them by any worldly category. For they, uh, the course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they likewise proclaim themselves to be the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, they're willing to go anywhere, even if it's hard, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and follow the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary cult conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. They don't over-identify with their country. As citizens, they share in things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. So they, they make contributions to the society, even while the society takes from them. They pay the price both ways. They're both good citizens, and they're mistreated as if they weren't citizens. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They're just wonderfully disconnected from the world, and yet very much present in it. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. It was unique to Christians, that they don't kill their children. They have a common table, but not a common bed. You get that? The men and women are faithful to each other in marriage. That was weird. Men 
Women were to be faithful to their husbands in that time, but men could have as many concubines and prostitutes as they want. It was only the, only the person they were married to that was a legitimate heir, but Christians valued women enough to go, you don't do that to them. And the Christian men wouldn't do that. So their tables were open to anyone, but their beds were exclusive. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many other people rich. They are in lack of things, and yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, and yet they bless. They are insulted, and they repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice, as if quickened to life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. See that? Those are the Christians in 130 A.D., He's going to look at them. You cannot explain these people. They make no sense. And they win. How do they win? They win because they're imaging God. And they're treating other image bearers as if they're made in the image of God. They're not weak and squishy on truth. Not at all. They stand for the truth, willing to die for the truth. But they want to win people with the truth. They image God. And I pray we image God as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together in your word. And this is such a big, this touches everything in our lives to how we parent, to how we do our jobs, to how we deal with that difficult boss or that hard customer, how we treat our grumpy neighbor, how we think about those who are sick and dying. It touches every political issue that we can think of. And God, we need your help. It would be so easy for us to just be reactionary in our own flesh and even justify that as being right. And maybe it even is, technically. But God, I pray that you'd give us help to know, to be like that good Samaritan who images you so well, even as he helps to restore the image of someone else, helps to help someone else made in your image, I should say. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we can be transformed. God, we pray that you would help us to, to see ourselves as responsible to be image bearers to others. I pray, God, that you would help us to see the image of God in others. God, help us to advocate for conduct and even social policy that promotes um, the image of God, protects the image of God, strengthens it, even while we hold out that none of that will work apart from our relationship with Jesus. So, God, I pray that you would give us faith to trust you even when it feels weird, even when it feels like it's not going to work. God, we pray that we would take a cue from our forefathers, our, those who were in a tough Roman Empire and who just simply would not give up their birthright um, for an easy life. They would not take the easy way out, but would, would choose to follow you even if it cost them everything. And I pray, God, we'd be the same way. That we'd be, we would just be determined to image you as best we can in your strength. Even if it costs us everything, God, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. 
For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.